So say you got the news on, it's it's morning, you're, you're making breakfast, and you see, unfortunately, yet another shooting. The volume's on, and they have seen it, they're old enough to comprehend what happened. What are the next words that come out of your mouth as a parent who's cognizant of all of this? How do you how do you talk about this subject again with someone? So the, the very first thing I want to do is validate. Right here, right now, what's coming up for you guys? What's what's going on? What are your thoughts? What are your emotions? What are you feeling in your bodies? And I want to name it and normalize it. Name it and normalize it to let them know this is a safe space to talk about your thoughts, your emotion and how you're feeling based on what you just heard. I'm feeling scared too. I'm nervous too. And you know what? This is a safe space for us to be having these conversations because the last thing we want to do is, oh, this is to come a norm. Don't worry about it. That's, a, that's, you know, that's not even here. That's far away from us. And the last thing you want to do is minimize and dismiss a child's thoughts and fears because it's only going to increase their anxiety. After we have that first clarify, you know, the, the, I want to be sure that I have, I clarify in the here and now that whatever they're thinking, they're feeling, and they're experiencing in their bodies is normal. And I want to have a safe space for them to be able to process. And after they feel that after they're able to process and talk about that as a parent, not make promises I can't keep. For example, the last thing you want to do is tell a kid is I am going to always protect you because a lot of times that is not the reality because when they're in school and you're at work, you cannot protect that child. You can, but you want to be honest and say, I will try my best within my ability to protect you and have a safe space for you. But if you don't, there's always going to be teachers, professionals who will, in my place, protect you. So let them know to trust these individuals that are in school as well. So be able to affirm and have that honest conversation about their thoughts, their emotion, what's coming up for them, and reinforce the boundaries and the safety that is around them so that it can diminish their anxiety as they're experiencing these adverse community events. You know, these conversations are not easy to have, right? They're they're very difficult and it's funny when you grow up, you realize your parents were also just adults and human beings and they felt the same way you feel about certain topics and conversations. And I, I can't help but think about how many people have suffered trauma at the hands of family members or within a family dynamic. It's so much easier to just cut a tie and let that ship sail away than it is to go back into the swamp How do you navigate a family trauma? Because there's so much higher stakes than I feel like if it's an outsider. Right. So when we talk about family, you look at the system. There's a system uh, and within the system itself, there's been um, certain uh, key players within that system who is, you know, who is the leader? Who is the follower? Who is the influencer? And so when you start looking at the system, you start observing the dynamics. You start realizing who's the one that carries the weight for the family. Who's the one who is the uh, denier, that they don't deal with emotions? Who is the doer? Who is the chief enabler? You start looking at archetypes, various archetypes that start showing up within the system. And how when you put in a traumatic situation or traumatic event, how that shifts the dynamic 
or reinforces the behavior within those archetypes within that dynamic. Interesting. Does that make sense? If I am scared and I am, let's say, the archetypal father who's a warrior and I don't deal with emotions, I when when trauma comes or when a wounding comes within the family system, let's say my child, my child has COVID and I can't control it and I have no power, no idea, I'm going to allow the archetype of warrior shadow show up. I'm going to show much more anger, much more frustration. I'm going to curse the doctors, curse the nurses. I'm going, you're going to start noticing that I'm going to be more reactive than responsive because of my expected way of being within the family system. If I break down, if I become vulnerable, if I'm perceived as weak, that's going to disrupt the dynamic within the system. And so I ha- you start realizing the, di- the, the, uh, the parent or whatever role you take within the family, it's either um, it's, you either go higher, raise the volume, or you lower it. But either way, it's going to change that dynamic within the family because of the trauma. Hey, if your career is perfect and everything is going exactly as planned and you've reached the height of where you want to go, skip this ad. But if not, I wrote a book called Leader Relativity, finally a starting point for new leaders. And I think it might just be up your alley. Because honestly, when I first started down my leadership journey eight years ago, it was confusing. There was so much thrown at me. And oh, by the way, what I was reading in the real world was completely different than what I was being taught at work. So if you're in this weird spot where you know you want to take your next step, but you're not quite sure how to do it, please give my book a try. You're exactly who I wrote it for. I can honestly say leadership has never been made this simple. So if that sounds interesting, if you're ready to take that leap with me, Hop over to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever you buy books and grab your copy today. Thanks. Are there certain archetypes that work better? Because there's the classic family construct, which you think of, which is really not, I don't think, the standard anymore, which is great. Families come in all shapes and sizes with different people. Do some of them lend themselves better to handling this type of situation than others? Well, when we start looking at integration, like if I'm very well aware of the role that I play, like for example, in my family, I know that I am a caretaker. I know I'm a caretaker. And I know whenever, you know, my mom, my brothers are, uh, are going through something, I know they can, they know they can call me and I will take their call and I would listen to them. However, if I don't pick up the phone, if I don't answer the phone as the caretaker, they start getting antsy. They start getting upset. They start, something's wrong. This is not like Alex. Something's wrong. I'm, and they leave messages like, I'm very concerned because you haven't called me back. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, when I'm overseas and I don't have, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm in Switzerland and I have reception, you're not going to get, I'm not going to get that call. And so when I came back to the States and I got like three phone calls from my mom, I'm worried. I haven't heard from you. What's going on? I'm very worried. You see that there's a shift of anxiety, of stress, of uh, fear that starts going within them because of me not being able to fulfill my expected caretaker role. Does that make sense? It does. It almost sounds like the glue. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so I have to be very mindful as a caretaker, what's mine, what's not mine, and be mindful of when am I um, working in the benefit, in the light attribute of that archetype, supporting them, but not enabling them. And then being able to step back and say, now what are you going to do with this information? Um, Because if I start dictating and telling them what to do, I've now tapped into the shadow component of that archetype. And therefore they're going to become very codependent on me and only, uh, and only want me to rescue them to enable, I've enabled them to where they're always going to need me where I don't want to do that. So I have to be very mindful. Once I become aware of the archetype, I'm able to understand how to navigate my role with boundaries and a boundary is not rejection. A boundary is protection. I love that. A boundary is not rejection. A boundary is protection. I want to protect myself and I want to protect our relationship so we can stay connected. So in my role as a caretaker, this is where I stop. What are you going to do with the information I've given you? I'm going to do A, B, and C. Awesome. Check in with me. Tell me how it works. If it doesn't, what are you going to do? Do you see where I'm going? It's like, I'm going to step away because I want to make sure that I set that clear cut boundary so that we can continue having a relationship, but that it's healthy. It's going to protect the dynamic. It's going to protect me as the individual, protect the system as well. And I think so many people, they get scared or worried that they're going to upset someone by establishing that boundary. But I think, especially as the caretaker in your family dynamic, you really run the risk of. I don't want to say abused is the wrong word, but taken no, no. for granted or yeah, yeah. run over or yeah, call it for name it for what it is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the enabler. I don't want to be taken over. I don't want to be the dictator because that can show up as a shadow. So I want to be very mindful of that. So I want to set that boundary to protect myself, to protect my psyche and to protect the relationship that we have. So we can stay connected as well. And that makes me think of your Ted talk. Because yes. it was all about setting boundaries. Correct. And, uh, and you talk through a story about an individual in your life who's, who's working and they're, um, well, they're taking on more ownership than I think they really need to at their job. Correct. And the, the thing that I, I took away a lot from that was, especially working from home, I can see my computer almost all the time. And I can see people's problems seeping through the computer at me. I can feel the unread emails. It's so hard to detach and set a boundary today, but it's really needed. But I guess I want to tie it back into then someone who's had a trauma. How do you set a boundary with someone who you know needs your help, but you you can't facilitate their swamp going into there? How do you be that person for someone? How do you set a clear boundary that I want to help you, but I can't? do it. I can't treat you. I'm not capable. I I use the term, where do they, where do you stop and where do they begin? Okay. That term. So, okay. When I hear someone's, I want to help my daughter. I want to help my son. I want him to stop drinking. I want him to start using. Okay. Can you answer me this question? Where do you stop and where do they begin? What do you mean? Yeah. Where do you say, this is where I stop. And where do they begin taking responsibility for their actions, for their healing, for their recovery, for their sobriety? What if they don't? They say, I I, I don't. So what does that say about you? So remember, once you become aware, you can't go back to being ignorant. 
you go into denial. What does that say about you? Well, that I'm enabling, that I'm trying to recover for them or trying to force them into recovery. How's that working out? I don't mean to be condescending, but how's that working out? It's not. Right. And and then I think about the family dynamic, because to me, this is the hardest one of all time because you love these people and you've been with them usually your whole life, but it's very difficult to have these exchanges or to not enable someone um, and to work through these types of traumas. It's, and you know, here's the thing, Joe, it's, this is, see, you're, you're, you're starting to, you're going through what I do with my clients that now we're going somewhere. Now you're going into soul. Now you're going into like, damn, you know, there was a podcast I did, man, the mankind podcast. I don't know if you, if you heard it, he was asking me questions and he, he indirectly was asking me questions about um, his friend and so forth. And he started realizing, Oh, I've approached this the wrong way. I've approached this the wrong way. And he started tearing up and he's like, Oh my gosh. Wow. I've approached this the wrong way. I've approached it from a cognitive. I want to help you. I want it, but it's not my job to help people. It's my hot job to support them in their process and their journey. I can't force them into sobriety. Correct. You can't judge them. You can't shame them into sobriety. You have to just have to walk next to them and understand that when they're hurting, sit next to them and they're hurting and they're wounding and intend help them if they want to cry and they want you to hold space for them as they're crying you sit with them and you cry with them and you hold space for them there's been times where i sat with clients crying they just they're crying and that's all they did for a good 30 minutes just cry and cry and cry because i feel safe enough to just be human and not carry the weight and it's like yes and that's healing but it sucks right because your ego gets in the way your ego gets in the way. And so when we start talking about the swampland of the soul, and, and especially with men, you know, next week, uh, next week, Sunday, I'm going to do a uh, active imagination. What's the playlist of your soul right here, right now, whatever you're going through, sadness, trauma, you know, anger, betrayal, what playlist, what would be the 10 songs that represent your soul and how it feels? And play it, listen to it, Ooh, feel that. it, and be with it. So I have 15 people who are going to come, because I only want a small group, because I want it to be intimate. And even 15 was like, okay, that's how I can do 15. It's like, okay, 15 you know, individuals are going to come together, and they're going to do the playlist of their soul. And they're like, but there's going to be some wounding. There's going to be, I'm already thinking about it. And as I'm talking to them, they're like, I'm already thinking about it. I'm getting emotional. That's the point. Can I ask what would be a song on your list? I think right now, um, that's a good one. Good question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think I'm uh, right now. I'm in a place where I'm transitioning. There's a song, um, the Prince of Egypt believe um, by Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston. There can be miracles if you believe. Um, uh, there's certain challenges that are going on in my life right now that I was not expecting, but I have a strong belief that this is part of my journey, the collective 
purpose is going to be fulfilled. And so that song with Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston, it's called When You Believe, is one of my biggest ones right now that represents how I feel from a soulful life. Even though I'm stressed and overwhelmed and scared of what's going on, I still have this belief that it will come to pass, whatever needs to come to pass. There is. And so that's, I think that's my big one right now. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Hey everybody, this week's episode is brought to you by my new book, Leader Relativity. Becoming a leader has literally never been this simple. I spent two and a half years boiling it down, waking up at 4.30 every morning, thinking how much easier can I make this subject for someone who's a little nervous in the beginning and just wants something to get started, to get their foot in the door. So that's what I did. The book's called Leader Relativity and you can get it anywhere you buy books. Thanks. And I want to talk about Alex, the counselor, not just how you practice, because as you're talking to me about the healing that you're helping people through, it's got a way on you oh, personally. Yeah. I mean, you're giving pieces of yourself to other people all day. Right. right. Yes. And so because of that, I do my own counseling. Because of that, I, I see my own therapist. Um, I do my own um processing, healing, meditation, journaling. Um, the writing of my book has been, I mean, the soulful professional, the intersectionality of human and uh, professional. It's like this, this, it's really helped me take a step back because there's, um, and you know, I, I know you're also uh, on, the, on your, your book's going to be coming out here pretty soon. So congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, um, there's this process of where I'm typing and I'm writing. I'm like, whoa, this is more Alex. Whoa, I need to step. Okay, I'm like, so I go from typing to journaling. Like, whoa, what's this about? Let me sit here. That's my active imagination. I start sitting and I'm like, oh, I still need to process this. Okay, let me process this. And then I, once I go through that process, for example, I didn't realize um, I, my grandmother always has played a huge role in my life. My grandmother's. Um, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother specifically, was a, a beacon of light for me in uh, growing up. And so her death was so uh, disruptive in my life because I didn't realize how powerful she was. And so um, she absolutely loved oak trees, uh, loved them, oak trees, loved them, loved them, loved them. And so when I was talking about being a human, I was talking about, um, I was writing in the book about my challenge of, you know, the stigma of getting tattoos and how I love tattoos because of the symbolic meaning and it's a sacred process. And so as I'm, I'm writing it, I, I start, uh, my very first tattoo was my entire back. It's the oak tree and it's a snake uh, eating a dragon. And, and, and in the middle is the eye of thought, which is the feminine, which my grandma always said, no matter what, I want you to remember that you have a feminine soul inside of you. And my grandma always knew that I was gay and she always knew that I identified as such, but she always protected that feminine piece because she says that who you are outside is the beauty replica of the, your inside. And I remember her telling me that and I'd be like, what the hell is she talking about? <laughs> I was a kid and I wasn't getting, yeah. and when I was typing about the tattoo and I remember the design and I started realizing, why am I charged? Why am I overwhelmed with emotion? Whoa, what is this about? I started noticing grief. Grief. Interesting. 
love and grief. Wait, grief and love are showing up. Two emotions. Emotions don't come alone. Emotions can come combined. Right now I'm feeling grief and love. I need to step away because my I'm, I'm coming from it from an ego place and I need to step away because I need to tend to this part of myself. And then I went to journal. And in journaling, I got healing. I got a, a, like a inspiration. I got affirmation. Does that make sense that, to where it's like yeah. I was able to, because I was able to give space. Like if I was to say there's two chairs right now here in my office. I sat with grief and love and I had a conversation with them and said, what, what information do you guys have for me today? What do you want to tell me about me? What do you want to tell me about life? What do you want to tell me about my grandmother? Oh, you still miss her. Yes, I do. I still miss her grief. Thank you for reminding me of the love that still lives within me. And love, you're reminding me that her love shines through and her love is going to be extended to other people through my writing. Yes. But right here, right now, I want to sit with both of you guys and just sit in silence and honor her memory. Do you see how that instead of shut it down, not dealing with it, it's not going to help. It never does. It, it never helps you to shut it down to process it and give it space as it prepares you for what's to come. Is there a point it can consume you ever? Is there ever a point where you have to put it off to the side a little bit to compartmentalize? So there's, there's a contain it. I'll give you a perfect example of when it comes down to it. I was doing an intake once at the juvenile detention center and uh, this kid was talking about their trauma and uh, it was very visceral details. And as they were telling me, I, I'm a visual person where you're talking to me and I'm starting to visualize what you're telling me. I'm like, I, I same. Yeah. It's like, I'm playing the movie in my head. And as they're telling me their trauma and they tell me the, the visceral details of it, I start having an emotional reaction. Like, Oh, here's my humanness showing up in my profession. Oh, here it is. And so what I did is I told the client that that day specifically, because they had, they had already had like a 90 minute uh, interview with me. I told them, Hey, I want you to think about most happiest time in your life. Take a deep breath. And I want you to think about what's the happiest memory in that, that time frame when you were like, I think they were like eight years old. Oh, my birthday party. What was it about your birthday party? There was pinatas. There was um, a theme of cars and the cake was about cars. And as I see them laughing and smiling, I want to make sure that I get to pull them out of that negative headspace. And I realize this is all I have bandwidth for today. Me as a professional, I have to honor my bandwidth. Meaning, in that moment, after 90 minutes of details, I could not, my, my bandwidth as psychological bandwidth, emotional bandwidth for holding space was at its end. And so I, again, boundary is not rejection. The boundary is protection. So I was able to identify that, pivot the conversation, and I knew it was a lot already, and let them know, hey, think. let's finish on a, a, a positive note. And then after that, I realized, okay, this was a heavy interview, heavy intake. I need to go, number one, exercise. I need to go to the gym. And I need to call my therapist to follow up because I didn't. I realized this really triggered me as a human because it was very gruesome, visceral details of their trauma. And so I'm mindful of 
I'm very somatic. I feel a lot of, of, uh, I I'm very conscious of my body reacting. Um, so I have a lot of clients who, when I'm in the middle of session, my stomach makes noises and it's not that it's not that I'm gassy. It's just that that lets me know that I'm holding, I'm holding space. Does that make sense? It's almost like when you walk into a room and you feel that something's off, you, you feel that space. And so I'm mindful that in my body, I can feel it. And so when I feel that heaviness show up, I, I know that I'm, I'm very mindful of that and be able to say, Hey, as a human, I've done enough for today and I'm okay with that. And I can set that boundary and take care of myself. And you clearly have these conversations almost daily. Mm-hmm. Can you, I mean, what's an average drive home look like for you? How do you oh. decompress and leave it there? <laughs> I'm glad you're saying that. Karaoke. Karaoke in the car. No way. Oh, okay. I have some. <laughs> I mean, if you think about uh, Adele, Madonna, Cher, Van Halen, Journey, nice. um, I I have the playlist of the soul. Like there's some days that I just, you know what? I need, I need some 80s Madonna. I need some a borderline. I need some Cherish. Oh, yeah. I need some, you know, I need some share in my life right now. I need some Van Halen. I need some jump. You know, I need to get myself up there. Why? Because I, I really need to. Um, and so my drive home is about 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Some depends on traffic in Denver. Right. And so um, I'm huge on music. Music feeds my soul. Music feeds my soul. And there's some times where if it's heavy, I give myself permission to be able to remind myself, this is not mine. This is part of the process. This is theirs and my humanness and be mindful and honor my humanness. That's the, that's, I think the key thing that I always tell counselors in this field, honor your humanness. There is, we were taught in graduate school and undergrad you do not share your humanness with clients. Really? Correct. Oh, yeah. You're taught to be professional at all times and be ethical and professional. But nobody teaches us. That's why there's a lot of burnout and that's a lot of compassion fatigue because nobody teaches us to take, to take care of our humanness. And so part of my TED Talk was that there's an intersectionality that happens between the profession and the human that cannot be separated but need to be, needs to be honored, needs to be respected. And when I clock out, and I'm driving home, I have to sit with Alex and everything he did in that day. And there's some days that I'm like, Alex, you did a phenomenal job, but damn, that was some heavy shit. That's, I'm sorry. I did some heavy stuff you did with, you know, and so you'd be able to like, damn, what do you need right now? You know what? I need some, some uh, earth, wind and fire. Uh, I need some, you know, I need some disco. I need some Ava. I need some, you know, some, some music to really lighten my soul. And give myself permission to feel and and release. And again, and say not my chicken. This is not mine. This is part of my profession. This is not mine. This is part of my profession. And when it seeps in, you're on the couch, you're watching TV, and you feel it seeping. What do you do? How, how does anybody handle that? I think it's do an inventory. Do the inventory. What do I need right now? Right now, right here, right now. Here it is. Again, when we talk about when it shows up in our humanness, in somatic, in... Um, uh, I had a client that died. I had a client that died uh, for an, uh, waiting for a, a residential bed. Uh, he was a teenager, and I had dealt with the grief. And the anniversary came, and I remember I was sitting um, 
I was sitting in my living room going through my social media and you know how social media is very good at reminding you a year ago, two years ago. Yeah. And so my social media said a year ago, you were going through this and I saw the picture and I saw my, my post. And I remember my, my, the brain has a black box. The amygdala has a black box and it records the big T's and small T's and it records all your five senses. And so when I saw that memory come up in my social media, I felt the blood, the, the, my pressure. I mean, I felt that blood pressure just boom, fall. And I was like, Oh, just huge grief. And I was like this sadness. And I was like, Oh man, right here, right now, what do you need? What do you need? You know what? I need to just, I need, I, I'm sad. Why? Because this teenager died and they would have been, you know, Eight, 17 today, or they would have been, you start realizing that's grief showing up, grief and loss. What do I need right now? I need to honor that human connection that I had. Even though it's outside of my profession, I still have that human connection and I, I want to honor that. And so be able to tend to it. And for me, it was just going around and wa- I walked my dog and just allowing myself to be grateful you know what? I'm grateful for the opportunity that I had to help them, had the opportunity to tend to them, had the opportunity that I did the best that I can as a human, and I don't have to carry the weight of shame or guilt, and I'm okay with that. So it's almost like personal um, affirmation and allowing yourself to process the emotion, not dismissing it, because that's when we start realizing addiction comes in, smoking drinking, you know, and you you just have to be very mindful of what comes up for you as a human because of your profession and honor it. A lot of people's going back to the swamp is literally revisiting a physical location and meeting with someone. And I heard a story that you shared once about going back to see a former boss and you apologized for some displaced anger and then, Oh yes. And they actually apologized to you. But yes, what I want to know is what if you don't get, what if it's not reciprocated? What if you go back there with the best of intentions and you don't get it? I imagine you feel they're leaving unresolved. Yeah. Um, You grieve the loss and you accept the fact that you did the best that you can to reconnect. Okay. And you have to honor their boundary. Oh. You have to honor their boundary because somehow their boundary is to protect them. Does that make sense? I'll give you an example. I'll give you a perfect example. I had, in my entire life, I only had one girlfriend. One. And, uh, and I loved her to the best of my ability. Um, and... When she, when we've been friends, we were friends for many years and she did tell me when I meet my fiance, I'm going to sever my relationship with you. Really? Even though you're gay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's going to sever my relationship with me. Why? Because she said, um, even though you might understand and we have, we have, we had a beautiful friendship, even though we made amends after we broke up and everything and she understood everything. But she said, I cannot risk making my husband feel insecure by something that happened in the past. Even though you are gay, I do not want to foster a space of insecurity of doubt. 
And so out of respect to my future husband, I want to sever the relationship with you. And I was like, yeah, 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 right. That's not going to happen. Whatever. Watch me and him are going to be very good friends. They're going to call me up and we're going to be best friends and whatnot. And sure enough, uh, she told me, hey, I want to give you a heads up. I met somebody. And I was like, oh, good for you. When am I going to get to meet him? You're not going to meet him. Oh. Oh. She goes, remember, I told you there was going to be a boundary. I think there's going to be a boundary here. And I was like, because you don't trust me. She's like, no, they don't understand um, uh, because she's uh, fairly – involved in the church and she's uh, she's fairly uh, active in the church and so is he and she goes doesn't understand it and so uh, and it's not my job to make him understand but i have to respect his boundary and so i did he does know about you he, i have had discussions about you and he doesn't care to meet you really okay yeah that's totally fine i was like okay but i'm gonna be real joe ouch uh ouch. yeah talk about rejection <laughs> Talk about uh, talk about uh, 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 not so much abandonment. What about a friendship? What about us? And it's like uh, you know. And I, I remember I was like, "So you're for real, for real?" She's like, "Yeah, I'm for real, for real." I I, I told you this, and I was like, "Yeah, you, you did." But then it just reality set in, right? And so then when uh, like about a month passed, she unfriended me on Facebook. Really? Uh huh. And then my friends told me, hey, I haven't seen this person on your Facebook anymore. We're not mutual friends anymore. I was like, wait a minute. But we have a lot of mutual friends. And wait a minute. You're friends with this person. You're friends with this person. And you're friends with my gay friends. What the hell? And so I started realizing um, when I talked to to her sister, I said, hey, what's going on? She goes, she said to convey with to you that this is – he asked her to, she, they, they're about, they were two weeks. They were going to get married. And I was like, she's going to get married. Yeah. Oh, I want to at least congratulate her. Can I send her a gift? Nope. Oh, and I was like, this sucks. This sucks. We had over 22 years of friendship and man, but I have to respect that boundary. It's not going to be reciprocated. Uh, And, I have to grieve the loss and smile that it happened and not be pissed that I don't have it. So you can, you can move on with either a trauma or a situation like this, even though you don't get the storybook ending, there is a way to, to move past it. It's called transmutation of soul. It's a union concept. It's like there's this situation that I'm being faced with right now. I can choose to let it crumble me and rise up as a phoenix from it. Or I can choose to allow it to do whatever it needs to do within me so that I can be better. Right. Ultimately, there's no failure. Ultimately, there's no – it's all for – my individuation for me to self-actualize for me to become better. And so now I can look back and be like, you know what? I can smile more than I can get pissed off. I smiled because it happened rather than get pissed off because I'm not there with them. It still hurts though. It does. And you know what? One of the things we have to understand about hurt is when we go through surgery, we have to feel hurt pain to know that we're healing. It still hurts, right? But it doesn't have that much dominance over us anymore. 
you know, I can just look back and smile and be like, yeah, it happened. And you know what? We have great memories. And when people bring them up, hey, do you remember this time when this happened? Oh my gosh, yes. And then this happened, this happened. And we laugh about it. There's no ill feeling there. I'm grateful it happened. Yeah, there's going to be some times that I'm going to be sad. Like, wow, you know, um, uh, I found out that, you know, they had a, uh, they, they they had a child or they were, they were working towards, uh, you know, uh, that she was pregnant. And so I was like, oh, Oh, I want to reach out and send a text. No, that's okay. I have to respect the boundary. Again, boundary is not rejection. Boundary is protection. And I have to honor that for what it is. And I've done that to many people. I've done that to people too, where it's like, you know what? This relationship has played its course. I have to sever it. And that's my boundary. I've done that too. And I've been okay with it. And people have respected that. So why wouldn't I reciprocate that? Sure. That makes sense. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you about how to respect other people's trauma because you never know what someone has gone through in their life. Uh, The word that comes to mind is trigger words, things that trigger past traumas. Gosh, how do you have open, candid conversations with people, but also respect their space and their background without knowing everything they've been through in life. Yeah. So I use two acronyms and this, you're going to get a little piece of my, uh, they call them Alexisms, my students, Alexisms. I call it the I and I and the C and C. The I and I. Listen, I and I, intent versus impact. My intention was not to affect, offend you. My intention was not to trigger you. However, I understand the impact of my words. But that was never my intention. And I apologize if I said things inappropriately or said, said something that triggered you in a way that caused uh, uh, a shameful, harmful um, uh, reaction from you. So that's the I and I. The C and C is I want to clarify, clarification, that if any time I say something that may create conflict, there's the C. Clarification versus conflict. My intention is not to create conflict. However, I can understand that a lot of times in my unknowing, um, I can say things that can create conflict within me and within you. I want to clarify that that's not my intention. And if I do say something, please feel free to clarify and call me out. I welcome that feedback. This is like a conversation you have kind of upfront with somebody, not right away, but it happens once you let them know. I don't mean anything by this. This is who I am. Yeah. And if we have an issue, tell me, please. Yeah. That's part of my conversation with all my clients in my first session. Listen, as we dive into trauma therapy, I want to, I want to do an I and I and C and C check-in. What the heck is that? An I and I is an intent versus, hey. And so when I say I and I, hey, so I want to check in with you. Today was a heavy session. Let's do an I and I or a C and C. And they get it like, oh, yeah. I, I noticed you're recharged and I noticed there was this reaction. I noticed this nonverbal reaction with you. I want to do an I and I and C and C. And they're like, yeah, that was pretty. I, I, I know your intention was not. Like, for example, that I had a client when I was like, so what does that say about you? That I'm an enabler. How's that working for you? And I noticed like, and they're like, it's not. I saw that charged reaction. I was like, let's do an I and I right now. That was pointed. 
Let's do an I and I. Or do we want to do a C and C? Do I want to clarify with you something? Why, why are you telling me that? Are you trying to shame me? No. I want you to become a mindful and aware of your behaviors and how it's impacting you. It's not shameful. I understand the impact. But thank you for clarifying because I don't want conflict. So being aware of your of yourself and how you're communicating with other people and mm-hmm. asking for people to be patient. And I think yeah. what I keep coming back to is a lot of these situations, having strong communication skills to be able to say what you're feeling to someone else and then have them to be able to tell you where they were coming from Correct. can alleviate a lot of butting heads sometimes. Correct. hundred percent. And they appreciate it because they built a sense of rapport and trust. Like, oh, you know what? They called me out and I called them out. We can call each other out. And that that builds trust and that can evolve even more in my conversation. So I can call them out or clarify with them rather than to react. That's amazing. Alex, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. This was awesome. I appreciate it.